Morgan here. I want to say congratulations. I uh, hear you're getting married to your wife, Anna. So enjoy that. Have so much fun. It's such a magical time to be a newlywed. Always fresh and exciting and new and fun. And so I hope you have so much fun and you're able to have some kind of a celebration. I know now during the pandemic, it's crazy and we can't do the things we would like to do the way we want to do them but hopefully you guys are able to celebrate in some way and um, please tell Allison I said thank you so much for asking me to send you this message especially now it's even more so of an honor um, but because of the occasion it's an honor too so enjoy yourselves congratulations and uh, Mary I hear that you call me America's sweetheart so I want to say thank you very much that is really kind and sweet Welcome everyone to American Girls, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. And you just heard the dulcet tones of one of America's sweethearts, none other than Nancy Kerrigan. How wonderful is she? I mean, wow. Like, Allison, I don't even know where to begin with this, but of course, I just need to let our listeners know this is my first, this is our first episode recording since I got married on June 6th, aka D-Day, hashtag pandemic wedding. It all happened. And, you know, I just want to say like Nancy, I did I expect Nancy Kerrigan to like give me away in a sense? Like, no. I think she was there in everything but body. She was there in mind. She was there in spirit. She was there with like the kindness of her words. And, you know, I love that she appreciated that she got to know that you call her America's sweetheart. Yep. Like, I'm happy that she could get that knowledge, but you have to know. And like, let me just situate our listeners. Like, we'll get into the wedding in a second. Obviously, this is part of it. But in a way, like Nancy's a big part of it. And I didn't see that coming. I woke up the morning of my wedding and of course I reached for my phone and I'm like expecting to be texting with you. And I get a text from you that's just simply like, it seemed like an image of Nancy Kerrigan and like in her backyard now. And I tap on it and it, I'm not kidding. This was like a four minute video cameo of Nancy <laughs> Kerrigan. Yeah. I was in shock. Instantly, Anna was like actually doing real things to get ready to go to my parents for the wedding. And I yelled out to her and I was like, stop what you're doing. She was about to, I think, go in the shower. And I was like, everything comes to a halt right now. <laughs> we need to hear from Nancy. And it was a wild cameo. I love that she makes you wait. Like other people you can book right away, like certain, you know, stars of 90, 90 Day Fiance type ilk. Nancy makes True. you wait a full week because she needs to meditate on the message that you need. Right. Yeah. You can tell there's a lot of things happening with her cameo work. Like I've only ordered one other cameo in my life. I've never received one before. So I've ordered one for a friend of ours, Abby. And it was like, I'll say generously a D-list reality TV celebrity off Are You The One? And I wrote this man a script. I was like, I want you to say exactly these words. And he did it kind of leaning sideways, sitting on a beanbag or like a papasan chair wearing a beanie. And it was very strange and it lasted like 30 seconds, but it was still great. This went on for four minutes and it basically was like a TED talk, sort of. <laughs> At a certain point, she said, you know, when you skate all alone, it's no fun. And I was like, I don't know how we got here, but okay. <laughs> She yeah. once read the study about bowling alone and, you know, what it says about <laughs> American culture. And she was like, I have something to add. She's like, I and I have something to say. to say about kindness. 
I don't want to throw out an SAT analogy too soon, even though that's one of my favorite things to do for no reason. Sure. Samantha is Tanelli as Nancy Kerrigan is to Tanya Harding. I think that's fair. I actually think that's really spot on because I've been reflecting on this as well, the connections between them. (laughs) And I do think that Nancy comes from a position of privilege, like her background comparatively, and is also seemingly very blind to that privilege. And if you've seen Price of Gold, which is an excellent 30 for 30 on this topic, Allison's laughing, but it's true. You can see that like she can't have any empathy for Tanya, even though on the score of like Tanya comes from a completely different place and she can't really appreciate how that shapes their expectations and behavior. I will say I was wondering the whole time, like I felt myself sweating the whole video because I was like, is she going to say break a leg at the end of this video? No, (laughs) no, I'm sure like she she didn't want to go there and I respect that. But it's like, wow sitting with that so that was like a really beautiful gift from you Allison so thank you again it's just wow I've been sitting with that I've shown that video to like 50 people like everyone I know I'm like I did get married I also sort of met Nancy Kerrigan here's the video (laughs) which is like not true we have a listener to this show who once as a child had his face paint done by Nancy Kerrigan at a community (gasps) fair which I know I have flexed to you before but I think is like a hugely critical piece of trivia about our listenership I love that. And I just want to say for our listeners, another listener of this show reached out to me and was like, hey, Mary, I think you would appreciate this Garth Brooks documentary on Netflix. And I will watch a documentary about literally anyone trying to explain themselves. And I highly recommend this because this man is not well. Like Garth Brooks is not okay. I'm worried about him. I'm just saying that flat out. There's a lot going on with this documentary. Like, he bursts into tears every 30 seconds. He's breaking the fourth wall at will. He speaks of himself in the third person and so on. I'm not a huge Garth Brooks person. Not, like, I just don't have feelings either way. But there's a moment where he talks about this song he put out called We Shall Be Free, which he is positioning as, like, his civil rights anthem, which is, like, kind of not real. But anyway, he shows part of the music video, and Christy Yamaguchi was in it. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, what a week of highs with me and, like, 90s figure skaters. So, anyway, thank you to our listeners. (laughs) I mean, so if this is your first foray into the show, you know, this show is absolutely going to be about Samantha Parkington. But it's also in the vein of Samantha Parkington, where if she got married on D-Day, which I kind of feel like she She might. She would, yeah. You know, because she exists in that kind of Taurus Gemini world you know, give us some highlights, right? Like big day for you. Changes for Mary. Changes for Mary, for sure. I will say, you know, I don't even know where where to begin. It feels surreal to be married. It doesn't feel real because I got married on a Saturday. I went to work on Monday, you know, at home as we all are. So it felt like everything changed and nothing changed. It's very strange to get married and not be able to hug anyone at your wedding. That was like a point of deep sadness. So it was a a day of like real highs and also just some tough, you know, feelings, I guess. But, you know, you were with me and that meant a lot to me. That like meant the world to me. So I'm very happy that you could be there. But unfortunately, we, we could only have like 10 people in my parents' backyard or something like that. And, you know, as our parents, Anna's brother was able to be with us, which was very meaningful my aunts basically invited themselves and were like, we're not waiting to be invited. Like, we are part of this. <laughs> yeah. And my cousin married us, um, and she's an artist, and she built the book wall that you may see on the photos. Uh, Maggie, she's super talented. And, you know, the weather was very hot. 
So, um, and also I woke up after watching Nancy, I was like looking at the weather and I hadn't let myself look at the weather at all. And it seemed like it was going to be a good day. And then Maggie was like, oh, download this app. It's more accurate. And I did. We got married at 2.30 in the afternoon. It showed all sunny weather except for 2.30 to 3.30 when there would be thunderstorms. So that was a tough moment. And I'm happy that we got the ceremony in outside because I was worried about having to do it indoors. Like that felt weird. I feel like when the ceremony started, it was sort of surreal. I remember thinking like, wow, this it's happening now. Like, oh my God, we're getting married. It's happening right now. Um, so I guess I was like ready and not. Um, my dad sang a song that he has sung at every family wedding. So that was a very special traditional element. We had um, some readings like a Mary Oliver poem and whatnot. People joined us via like family. A lot of family joined us via live stream. So that was nice. And I carried a handkerchief that I had made that had um, some writing from my grandmother on it, um, who obviously means the meant the world to me and still does. So, you know, there was a lot of like small things that we did that made it very personal. But, you know, it was hard. Like my brothers weren't there and that was difficult. And but also it was a time of like we had incredible, like our friends showed up in an incredible way. Our family showed up in an incredible way. So like you and our friend, Abby, shout out to Abby, put together this really beautiful video that totally made us cry of friends sending us well wishes who were meant to be with us that day and couldn't be. And we watched that and that was like incredibly moving. And right after the ceremony, my aunts arranged for a parade of some of our cousins and my uncles with their cars decorated. And that like I basically just like kept bursting into tears all day. It was like (laughs) a very Leo moment. I was just crying all day. But, you know, the most important thing to me is that, um, you know, I get to be married to Anna and that's like such a gift in my life. And that we had the most important people with us in some capacity on the day was also very meaningful. So, you know, it ended up being, I think, a fun day. I don't know, Allison, you were there. I had a great time. I think it was you know, the best use of Dante since Brahmin sat around reading it 120 years ago. Wow. Dante was used very well. Shout out to Anna and everyone else. <laughs> um, it was beautiful. And there was a dark cloud that came over, like literal dark cloud only after the ceremony. But it was nice. We sat in air conditioning and then we went back outside. Air conditioning is key. Yes. Yeah. Cake was served, which is like absolutely vital. Yep. We had cake. We had ice cream. We had Italian food. I wore pants, which my mom, I think, struggled with, but on the day of was like fine with, which was good. Although, you know, I was kind of rolling with that regardless. Anna wore the dress she was wearing the day that we met. So that ended up being some way like the pandemic conditions of like neither one of us have had haircut months. <laughs> we had to wear clothes that we had, you know, it ended up being making it um, special in a way. So I think it's something that we'll always remember and we're hoping to celebrate, I think, with family and friends next year sometime. But um yeah, I mean, it was it was a good day. It was just like a weird experience. And like I said, you know, on Sunday, we came home and our apartment was a wreck. So we kind of cleaned the apartment and sort of hung out. And then Monday, it was like back to work. So it was just sort of like strange. It's hard right now to celebrate. And it's hard to kind of carve out that time because you can't go out and do so many of the things that you want to do. Right. right. So it's like even a very happy moment right now is is different than what a happy moment might have felt like in a different time, I think. Yeah. And I think like even just the small moments of like my dad, my dad started singing this song and it's hard because it's so loaded, but like my parents have only really attended Catholic weddings. So 
um, my parents would ask questions leading up to this, like, well, how long will the ceremony be anyway? Like a point of genuine curiosity because they just had so little experience with things that didn't take place in church. So my dad usually sings this song after communion. And so it's like associated with seeing my dad, like in the choir loft at like every relative's wedding singing this song and he's saying it in their backyard. And when he started singing, I started crying. And like so many people did who were there, like Anna was crying I don't know. It was just very strange. It was like surreal and really beautiful, like to take something that I thought I could never have. Like I knew I wasn't going to get married in a Catholic church. So I somehow thought like, well, I'll never have my dad sing that song at my wedding. And so to still have it and have this sort of like tradition that I am okay with, with this song happen and be so moving um, was really special. But you know, just difficult when it ended to feel like I couldn't hug you. Like after we got married, I couldn't give you a hug. I couldn't hug my parents. Like that was hard. And I didn't anticipate like those kind of small things. But, you know, as I say, like it was just to feel like, you know, in our vows, we say like when we put the rings on, like I'm honored to call myself your wife. Like that's the most important thing to me. And I really do feel that way. So yeah, it was beautiful. And so many of our listeners reached out to me to congratulate me, which was so nice. Like, I mean, in this world of like social distancing, like I didn't feel that distance from all of you who I don't have the pleasure <laughs> of knowing really. But, you know, all these very nice messages that were very confusing to my mom who went on Instagram and was like, who are all these people? Like, I don't know who this is. And I was like, you don't know them. It's OK. Like, they're cool. It's fine. They know us and that's enough. Truly. Yeah, truly. But yeah, it was very special. Yeah, it's been awesome to hear from people too who, you know, don't know who answers what and they're just like, congratulations. And I'm like, I will happily pass that along. <laughs> oh, that's very sweet. Yeah, I'll have to, yeah. I'll have to check in there. But uh, yeah, you read the actual official Instagram messages. I read them if people send it to me. But um, so if I've missed any, I'm sorry, but I've written back and some people, you know, wrote to me and said they're going through the same thing of either like they had to postpone their wedding or they're having to consider that now. And so I feel for everyone who's going through that or has gone through it. It's difficult to not necessarily to have like a major life event um, impacted by something that's completely outside of your control. And I think like having to sit with uncertainty is like a very difficult situation um, in life in general. And there's so much going on in the world right now anyway that you know, to, I think, have um, a moment of joy if you can have it, even if it's not the way that you originally intended, um, it can still be um, very meaningful. So, you know, I feel for everyone out there who's going through it. And thanks to everyone who sent me a message. It genuinely meant a lot to me. Genuinely. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I wish I could say that I was not, I don't think I was like a diva at all, but I do reflect on like what Samantha must have been like. (laughs) as a bride like when she grew up we'll get into like who I think her historical avatar is and what Susan Adler is all about doing this but are we ready to get into the book do you think I will never be ready but I am prepared for this moment are you emotionally spiritually prepared um I have to say I'm very thrilled that we're doing Samantha I think when we were covering Addie we were reading books that were so well researched right so carefully curated by a community of people who really cared about representation, really cared about telling meaningful stories. And this book is a delight in a completely different way. (laughs) That's true. That setup made me so nervous because I was like, are you about to like take down this entire franchise? Okay. No. I mean, you can, that's fine. But I just, I was like, whoa, 
I thought you were like coming for like a major put down where you were like this other series was so well researched. No, I think, you know, and we'll get into it. I think this being part of the original trio of stories, it's different. Like I think there were we're learning more and more. There were lessons learned or not learned or not processed Oof. as they went through these different characters. I think that's 100% correct. <laughs> and I'm very excited to get into this book. So let's do it. Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. Okay, so... Now that we're back in book times, which I'm really excited. I was excited to just read an American Girl book for this week and to talk about her. Um, So this book has had a few different major releases, the first one being in the late 1980s, um, just a year to two years after our births. I'm not, you know, I'm not like, I'm just trying to put on a timeline for folks. I mean, this Um, book came out the year I was born. No big deal. Yeah. So part of what's interesting about that is it's really the shortest distance that we've had so far between date covered in story and date of publication. Yes. We're only talking like 80 something years, which is a lifetime. Um, Samantha Parkington is an orphan who lives with her rich grandmother in 1904. There are many servants in Grand Mary's bustling household, but there is no one for Samantha to play with like boohoo. Okay. <laughs> That's why she's so excited when Nellie, a servant girl, moves in next door. Although their lives are different, the two girls become good friends. One day, Samantha discovers that Jessie, the seamstress, is leaving. No one will tell her why. We'll tell you why. So she and Nellie plan a secret midnight adventure to find out. That's like barely even the plot of the book, to be honest. so not even close, but it's like, (laughs) I don't know how they got there, but that's fine. I mean, it's like, how do you summarize this book? That's the thing. So Samantha is that friend who is always shocked by things. Yes. And we all have that friend who is that person where you're like, here's something that everybody knows. And they're like, wait a second. Wait, no. Did everybody know that? (laughs) So Sam is growing up in 1904 New York, which we only know from outside research. That's really not even discussed at all in this story, but is obviously a reflection of Pleasant and her own like New York ambitions, which we'll talk about in detail later. Um, Samantha is kind of our guide in the way that Felicity and others have been through like worlds that are not her own. Like she's this tremendously privileged young girl who sadly has lost her parents. And so she's kind of being tutored by a group of people and being parented by a grandmother who seems a little checked out to me. Grand Mary, and by the way, I hope that's how her name is pronounced or her title, but Grand Mary <laughs> is a role that I will be assuming, is a title I will be assuming as of this recording, 
Yeah. Until I decide otherwise. I mean, it's both an affirmation, like it's a descriptor, like she's grand, but it's also like who she is. And while we're just getting into like this cast of characters, I do want to start at the beginning with our character descriptions, because in many ways, these are some of my favorite things that go on. Every single person in this little vignette is described only by what they can do for Samantha or how they relate to her. That's it. Except for three people. (laughs) Nellie is described merely as the girl who lives and works next door. That's it. That's all we need to know about her. Cornelia, who we've not truly met in this book, but I'm excited to get to know her more. An old-fashioned beauty who has newfangled ideas. And it's like, what? Excuse me? Like, I feel like my grandma wrote that description where she's like, you know, (laughs) these ladies, these crazy ideas. And then Elsa, who's described as the maid who is usually grumpy. That's it. That's all we get about her. And it's like, yeah, I'd be grumpy too if I was a maid in this house. That hit me. What do you mean? That just hit you where you lived? It just hit me where I was like, you know, I think we're living in a period where there is a kind of, you know, what I and others have referred to as like oppressive positivity of like, there's no need to complain, like just be gaslit into going back into life as normal. And it's like, maybe she's grumpy because life in New York in 1904 is like incredibly challenging for literally almost everyone. Yeah. Like if you're not in the so-called 1% of this time period, life is not a joy at all, <laughs> despite what we learned in peak into the past. Um, but there is this sort of like enforced optimism that runs through this book, both the plot and the peak into the past, where it's like, hey, guys, we know things were rough, but they were always exciting. Like, <laughs> you know, it was like, Ooh, what an adventure this life is. And it's like, yeah, I don't really know if that's true. And also it's like a value negative if you just are a realist, which is weird because realism is sort of coming into fashion in this period in some ways. But we don't get that in a depiction of a period in which that's true. So like Elsa can't just be like, like if we asked Elsa, how would you describe yourself? Would she say, I'm a maid who's usually grumpy? I, you know, that's her right if she wants to say that. But it's like, I doubt that's how she'd define herself, like by her vocation or her occupation. Very strange. I've decided, apropos of nothing and not based on anything from this book, that Elsa is actually a socialist. Interesting. I'm listening. So they just can't handle it. So kind of to this point, um, so Samantha lives with her grand Mary. There are other people who live in the house who work for the family, and we'll talk about that. There's Uncle Gard, which is sort for gardener, which is not a thing. If it is, tell us, but that's not I don't thing. feel like that's a thing, but I just want to say <laughs> this man is a perfect 10. Yeah, he is. He is a perfect 10. If you were looking at this image, I don't usually like a mustache on a man, but it's like he gives me Freddie Mercury vibes. We'll get yeah. in more ways than one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get there, but it's like, anyway. (laughs) So Guard is, I'm calling him Guard. He's ostensibly dating Cornelia, which no one is actually buying. I think there's other things going on there. I think they Um, both need a friend, if you know what I mean. (laughs) It's like sometimes a relationship is a cover story and that's okay. Yeah, I think she's a cover girl in a different way. So He's got a mustache and also a beard, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) 
she's an old-fashioned beauty with new ideas. I think it's so interesting because, you know, we recently had our conversation with Allison Lange, and we want to talk to her again about how suffrage and other kind of politics enter the world of Samantha. It's so interesting that they're emphasizing that Cornelia is beautiful. We know that she becomes an activist. She has this like large poof hair that's all pulled up and she's very attractive. I feel like Elsa just by default is probably an activist in her own way, but she's being labeled as ugly and grumpy because it's not the kind of activism that we recognize as like beautiful or important, right? right. Like it's not the kind of pageantry. I kept thinking, like, why 1904? And I know they picked 1904 because they're spaced by um, ending in a four. And the previous was Kirsten, who was 54. The next is Molly, which is 40, 1944. But 1904 is so random. It really is. I, I keep thinking of, like, why 1904? And I can't settle on a year. And I was also, <laughs> I did a very deep dive, we'll get into this later, into Wikipedia um, ship tragedies like naval <laughs> tragedies aquatic tragedies because i'm thinking to myself like we get a timeline of when samantha's parents die yeah and it doesn't it sort of doesn't really track onto any like no like notorious tragedies so it's like you know i would love to think that samantha's parents went down on the titanic because like that would track but obviously that doesn't work for their timeline so who can say and it's like maybe Elsa is grumpy because she signed on for just taking care of one elderly woman who has a lot of money and then Samantha arrives. Like if you don't remember Samantha, it is constant probing and hijinks. Like everyone is trying to work and she's like, but what if I had a question about a basic operation of the life that we're all living in and everyone has to stop and engage because she's supposedly being schooled but like not actively in this we're book we're not seeing it also no. like this is there's a reference to a collection plate on page two of this book i think if we are we open to like moving to that content the book opens with a scene where she falls out of a tree and she skins her knee and like you know cuts up her stockings and it's like okay you did cause this and her neighbor yeah. eddie who allison has apparently lots to say about Basically teases her by saying you're so dumb and that's his only move throughout the entire book. I absolutely hate that as an insult in real life. I will not tolerate anyone saying that to anyone else ever. So when I read this, it actually like gave me pause because there's just something about that that I really genuinely hate that. But then the next plate, she comes at him and is like, excuse me, I will put your beetle collection in the collection plate at church and I'll I'll say you did it. And it's like, whoa, that's a very specific <laughs> threat that you've clearly like clocked and had. You've been sitting on this for a while, like to lay this, to roll this out to Eddie. But my point is like she references going to church, but this is a person who lives her life truly like an eight year old free of morality. Like I'm so used to Josefina and Kirsten being like, <laughs> ah, like, oh my God, I've wronged. Like, they're the people who literally sit up at night like me being like, I still feel bad about that person I wronged in second grade. Like, th it, their guilt is so deep. Whereas Sam Samantha literally, like, causes an insect incident in the house and she's like, moving on, like, don't care. Everything she does, she's like, I've thought about this really intense insult or, like, blackmail for my neighbor who basically has not a lot going on in terms of, like, his capacity to truly come at me as an equal and she's just rolling it out like time and time again. It's like this is a person who is just like operating from emotion. She feels no guilt. It's really stunning. She doesn't have anxiety, which is a defining characteristic of Kirsten and Josefina. 
She doesn't have anxiety. She's a, like probably the most truly privileged person I've ever read about in this series <laughs> and that she has absolutely no consciousness of anything. And we'll like be talking about that more and more. But I kept sort of imagining like in the Paltrow home. Okay. Like Gwen is home with Apple and company. Like we're all getting through this pandemic at a certain point, the kids are bored, whatever. It's like, there's only so much like juicing you can do and whatever else happens in their household. And she's like, guys, I want to teach you about genealogy. Like, I want to get into the Paltrow family story, the Blythe Danner of it all, etc. She brings them up to a family trunk. She opens the trunk. She pulls out this book and she's like, look at all these vignettes, like Nellie, so-and-so. And she's like, Samantha Parkington. She was like, or as I call her, great, great, great Grand Mary. <laughs> Just saying. I don't even... I don't even think she would be that old. I think that's that's possible. Great grandma. I think it's real. Like I think the shocking lack of consciousness, like the only doing exactly what you want, but somehow framing it as like this is a benevolent act for that benefits other people. Therefore, you should praise me like this all smacks of goop culture and like white privilege culture in a way that's sort of stunning. And I just can't help but think that this is a Gwyneth Paltrow story set in another era. Just saying. I do love the way the adults are just absolutely not having it. So Jessie is a black woman and we learn a bit more about her life and where she lives in subsequent chapters. But the first chapter is actually Samantha interrupting Jessie at work. And you know Jessie isn't getting, you know, breaks. So this is like just going to have to force her to speed up later. And we learn that Jessie makes clothes for the household and she's been tasked with making something for Grand Mary. And Samantha, once again, has spoiled her outfit. And she asks, what have you been up to? No, don't tell me. I don't want to know. You're nine years old, almost a lady, and still getting into mischief. And this is a trope that we've seen now across, well, there's a few tropes that we've seen across all of the books, which is this thing that at nine, you're basically an adult. Yeah, it's very strange. And I guess, like, depending on your class, it could be of the times, except for her class, it's not really of the times, or it's a very specific understanding of what it means to be an adult. Like, Grand Mary says to her on page three, discipline is what turns girls into ladies, which is sort of like, okay. But I think it's <laughs> like what she's sort of signaling, like, is if gender is a performance, what she's sort of saying is like a woman of our class learns a certain performance of how a lady behaves. And then if you master that performance, you're a lady. So there's certain things that are key to that performance in our family and in our income bracket. And some of those is like not running around and climbing trees, like doing as you're told, not speaking, only speaking when spoken to, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like in that same conversation with Jesse, what really struck me was when and I think it's sort of like this almost C plot line that we don't really return to. But I think it's here to tell us something about what she's like. And it's on page six. And it says, as Samantha looked around the room, she noticed a piece of jelly biscuit on the floor. She must have dropped it the day before. Three ants had found it. She was about to tell Jesse when she noticed two more ants on their way. It would be fun to see how many would come. No. And it's like, I'm sorry, this is a person who like literally burns your house down and is like, <laughs> I don't know, I just wanted to see what would happen. It's like, are you serious? And it's strange, so strange to me that this plot line is in here. I guess it's like meant to be humorous, 
that, you know, because Je- later there's a scene where Jesse's like running up the stairs and she's like, I, I got to go. There's like a 100 ants up in, you know, the third floor. Like we have a huge ant problem now. And Samantha like literally is never caught like blamed for it, never called to apologize, never part of fixing it. It's like, oh, well, Jesse will just take care of that literally as invisible labor and that we never actually get to see her have to solve it. We just see her running away and it's like, ha ha ha. Like Samantha did that. Like, LOL. Like, it just seems like it reads weird now because she's nine years old or eight years old. And this is the kind of stuff like nine year olds do. Like, I get that. But I think the way that that's treated would have been different if Kirsten had done it um, or Josefina or even Felicity, like people of a different period. Certainly Addie, like I don't really see Addie doing this because she's too smart, but it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, don't know, I think it's it's to signal excess because at yeah. the very back of the book, we learn that Samantha has this like really active imagination. It's like Samantha can imagine almost anything, but she has to learn about hunger. And I think this was yes. like someone was sitting next to the keyboard and like puffing up like Reaganomics. <laughs> and they were like, imagine a world where children have to learn about hunger from a book and are able to drop their jelly biscuits everywhere. I do think for a child reader, it's meant to endear you to her because she, you know, is they're trying to, I think, break that wall of like you thinking of a Victorian or Edwardian type girl as stuffy. Right. And it's like, no, Samantha's a cool Edwardian girl. She's so cool. Also, like, I think you could read it, too, as a moment of curiosity. Like, she's genuinely like, I wonder what would happen if I didn't do anything. Like, how many more ants are going to show up here? So, I mean, I don't think she's like a STEM or an early STEM pioneer by doing this, (laughs) but, you know, I think that's like another possible reading to try to be charitable to Samantha. She is also that person who lets curiosity drive her in all kinds of ways that are interesting. Like she gets really curious about the new girl who is living next door, which is Nellie. And then together they get very curious about what Jesse's life is like outside of the confines of work. And so they go to her house because we learned that Nellie has a reason to know where that is. It's like she's curious about all these different kinds of things you know, like she's nine, so she's not Jacob Reese, but she is like just nosy enough to make her an interesting protagonist. Even now at 32 years old, we're like, I am kind of like, what is she going to get into? Yeah, I genuinely feel that <laughs> way too. And she's also brazen enough or like owns owns her lack of knowledge around certain things to say it, which also yeah. <laughs> creates these moments of exposition. But we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves. But she so we meet Nellie, who comes next door to work for the family next door. And, you know, this is Samantha's first exposure to the fact that there are people who have to like children her age who work. And she can't really fathom that. And she kind of says that by like asking a million questions where she's like, hmm, so you worked in a factory? Like, but when did you go to school? Nellie's like, I've never been to school. And she's like, hmm, weird. Um, hmm. And then she's like incredulous <laughs> that Nellie can't abandon her job hanging laundry to come play with her immediately. And all she brings her a gingerbread cookie. And Nellie desperately wants to eat it, but can't fears being seen like, you know, like slacking on the job. So there's all these moments where we actually get to sit with Samantha as she 
like her consciousness gets raised to different realities in her world. And I do think that's kind of makes it, as you're saying, interesting to read because it's not like she's super woke and we're just going with her as she moves through <laughs> like crises that we can anticipate. It's like this person is literally stumbling through life and we have to watch her figure it out, which is kind of interesting. It is. And they set up Nellie as this really sharp contrast right away where like Nellie does have parents, but she can't be with them. And I think that that's an interesting connection between the two of them as friends, that one is sort of an orphan through death and one is an orphan through poverty. Mm. And I think that's something as kind of a phenomenon in American culture that we don't really talk about a lot, which is across, you know, the past four or 500 years, people have had to give up their children and how much agency they had varies over time. But even Dorothea Lange, who took one of the most famous photos of mothers, she had her children basically relocated while she worked. She Mm. was not able to juggle these two things in the 20s and 30s and basically puts her children with other people. So whether it's a formal indenture or it's something like Nellie, like imagine how heartbreaking to send your child away and to know that she's face-to-face with Eddie, who like does not deserve, (laughs) you know, like the freedom that he has. Eddie is Um, the worst. Eddie is an All Lives Matter t-shirt come to life. (laughs) Say more. Eddie is really obnoxious, and Eddie really struck a chord with me because this book made me really think back, and I know that it persists, but I think it was very popular in the 1990s. Like, boys aren't being mean to you. Boys aren't bullying. They like you. And boys are dismissing your intelligence because they're jealous or they're this or that. And instead of modifying boys' behavior, it was like, girls have to learn too. And I always sat with Eddie's. Like, I didn't get to sit often with girls. I always sat with boys who were sort of misbehaving. And the purpose was like, well, you're a good influence. And instead of saying like, well, how do we tap into your potential? It was like, you're in this quasi-caregiving role for someone like an Eddie. Like, Nellie is no doubt doing emotional labor to keep Eddie from, like, pushing the family cat out the window. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) And, like, the ways they have to placate him or build him up so that he won't tattle on them about going out on their adventure. It also gives you those vibes of, like, you're right. Like when you are forced to sit with people who aren't trying as hard, like I've been forced to sit with those boys in school where they're like, you know, or like underwhelming your accomplishments to make a boy feel better where it's like, you know, like you and I both know, like you did the best on this test. Like I had a teacher do this to me, but they're like, but we're not going to say that because, you know, it's going to make like so-and-so feel sad. Like this boy whose ego is like entirely fragile and yet they're the ones who are like announcing their test scores when it goes okay and you're just like this is weird like it's so complicated and strange but something I was thinking about too Allison that when you said about um kind of necessitating like orphanhood as like a marker of these characters is that it also kind of seems like these books are drawing on or influenced by the Eloise books or at least I was thinking Mm. a lot about those when reading them that they also necessitated as well, like having a child, like a, a young girl who is on her own a lot of the time and having to explain away why that's possible. And for her, it's like, well, she's living in the Ritz or the Plaza Hotel, excuse me, and her parents are busy. So she just has all these like hijinks. And it's such an exceptional situation. Like she's living in this very luxury hotel. Her wealth is never explained or apologized away or apologized for. It's just like she is this person 
she's badly behaved. We're all rolling with it. <laughs> and people are entertained by it, whether or not it's allegedly based on Liza Minnelli, who can say Uncle Guard might have liked that. But um, <laughs> but in it, <laughs> subtle, <laughs> but listen, it's Pride Month. I'm not going to be anything but not subtle. Um <laughs> But, you know, I do think that there's a similar kind of quality here that here we have a person of extreme privilege in her era and, you know, her parents are very absent and it's just quickly explained away. It's literally explained away by her saying, did you ever know my parents to Jesse? And Jesse's like, well, no, as you know, I didn't come to work here until after they died five years ago or four years ago when you Mm -hmm. were five. So we get a timeline that the parents died in 1900. But yeah, it's very it's interesting that so much relies on the parents not being present. There's also something really smart about situating it in this house because um, when I used to do tours of servants' quarters, we would talk about, like, who had access to where. And Samantha being a child, like, it's different from being, quote-unquote, the man of the house. Like, she has this kind of pluckiness and at times cluelessness where she meanders through the entire household. Whereas Jesse, who is on the payroll or alternatively the man and the woman who are sort of like the butler and housekeeper of the home, they don't have access to everywhere. So having a child who's a girl who's inquisitive, she can actually go everywhere. And I think because of that kind of naivete, she also goes to Jesse's house and that's where Nellie has to tell her basically about segregation. And Samantha being a little bit clueless about this in a way, her life, like her intimate home life is segregated in a way where there's like all these classes and races of people within the household, but they all serve her. So she has access to all of them. Right. And then there's kind of this shock where she's like, oh, so there's a neighborhood where people live completely separately and it's a black neighborhood. Um, Like that's a surprise to her because in her world, there are people of all backgrounds because they all serve her. Right. And I think that's such an essential point because she has that fluidity where she does live in a segregated space, but because she's a child, she can be fluid around through all of it. Like she's down in the servants. She's up in the servants quarters. She's down in the kitchen with um, the butler and he tries to get her to polish silverware to talk to him and she absolutely won't do it. You know, but she's fluid in all of these spaces. So she presumes that everyone else in her world shares her same fluidity and they don't. And it comes out with Jesse where she Jesse announces she's leaving. No one will tell her why. And she starts to imagine with Nellie, like, where did Jesse go? And her first thought, literally first thought is, oh, well, she's a famous actress. She went to be a famous <laughs> actress. She's going to come back here. She's going to introduce me to all her famous friends. And her husband, Jesse's husband, is a Pullman porter, which is like interesting story development. Um, you know, she, she assumes that Jesse will have the same mobility that she does and is genuinely shocked when they go to decide to go to Jesse's house to, um, figure out why she left. And Nellie signals like they're moving into the segregated part of town. And she's like, what's that? And it is truly stunning to be with her when she has to face that reality, but also seems to just sort of like, it passes her right by where she's like, okay, anyway. There's also the fact that that chapter is called Night Visit. And so, like, spoiler, if you don't remember the books, Jessie has had a child, and basically on her second day postpartum, Samantha barges into the house, which is, I'm sure, exactly what she wanted. And Samantha comes in and is, like, asking, like, her 20 questions routine. But the reverse could not happen, right? Like, you think of sundown communities or you think of places and historical contexts in which literally Black men and women and Black 
children would not have been allowed to enter Samantha's world, like places where there were sundown signs, you know, including New England, including Connecticut, Massachusetts, where Black people were forbidden from being there after dark. And part of the purpose of that being, you know, there being allowances for people to work, but not to live. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of upholding segregation just by a different name. I'll just also say the fact that the help is trending on Netflix is a problem and it needs to stop. Please do not watch the help. Do not contribute to this. Even the stars of the help are speaking out saying like, please don't watch it. Like there's more nuanced things to do. I would say this chapter is more nuanced than the help. Yes, I I actually totally agree with you because like, <laughs> you know, as you may know, we've probably talked about it on the show, like the critique of the help is that it centers white um, actors as like, you know, fixing civil rights and black people were just quote the help. And obviously the reverse is true and centering white people in a story about um, black history and culture is a huge problem and not something we should be doing. Um, It's based on a book by a white author and obviously has received a lot of feedback, negative feedback. Um, So the fact that it's trending is is tough. Um, So, yeah, that that's an important point. I was also thinking too, Allison, in that chapter, it was really interesting. It was called like night, whatever, uh, Night visit. Night visit. Because it made me think about night porters. And mm. they also have, they mentioned streetlights. And so the invention, there's a lot of like technology that gets thrown around in this book. It's basically <laughs> like, if you want to know what big technological innovations happen in this period, read this book and they will get subtly brought out. <laughs> yeah. So streetlights being one of like a an further innovation or further development in streetlights, like you wouldn't, being cast in streetlights was a way to secure cities or like provide the fantasy of security but it's also a privilege of like who can walk under them like who are they really for and as you're saying a lot of black people in cities now like let's presume this is in new york you wouldn't be out in a lot of these in a white neighborhood a privileged neighborhood unless you were in a service position like a night porter um or like there was a service of the um mostly black men who would go around and empty latrines before indoor plumbing in housing complexes and in rich homes. So, I mean, those are the kind of only like the lowest jobs that no one wants to do. Like they're okay to go into white communities, but no one else. It's also, you know, now that we've put the help in the conversation, again, thinking of poor Jesse being like so soon postpartum, she's just had a baby. They've named him Nathaniel, right? Like her husband is away a lot. So they're probably trying to like bond and spend time together. Samantha knocks on the door. You can't say no, right? Right. Like as an adult, we understand that. And we also understand that there are probably so many ways in which whatever Samantha thinks their relationship is, Jesse definitely thinks of it differently. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of that chapter, when she says, now my husband's going to take you home or your grandmother will like kill me or like she'll have, I forget what she says, but it's like, yes, like Jesse understands like the reality of that threat. Yeah. Not of physical violence, but of like the repercussions are very different for her than they would ever be for Samantha. And it actually makes me think of this social media thread that was actually really interesting by the showrunner of Grey's Anatomy. Now, I'm not just like bringing Grey's up for, you know, myself, but she lists like these series of things that she did as a teen. Like she shoplifted. She ran out of stores in the mall wearing really expensive clothes. And the worst thing that ever happened to her was uh, she got um, probation uh, for six months. That's it. And basically saying like, if I was black, there's no way that this is what the repercussions would have been, you know, for transgression after transgression. And it's like the rules are very different now, but especially then too. And and the fact that Jesse acknowledges that I think makes this way more nuanced than the help. Like, and signals that 
white privilege makes um, choices different and also like also class differences. The fact that Nellie understands the reality of her life in a way that's way more nuanced than Samantha does and has to try to like teach Samantha. So it's not only that you have to deal with the difficulty of your own situation, but that this privileged person expects you to educate them about your the like the things that you're up against so that they can be your ally. It's like it's it's tough. I think we're reading Samantha at a great time, right? Mm -hmm. Like for that reason. I also got kind of interested in like what would be the wider world of people like Jesse and her husband, Lincoln. And also I couldn't help but think like, you know, what is life going to be like growing up for their son, Nathaniel? Mm. And I actually, I did not know this. In 1904, there was a black American who ran for president, George Edwin Taylor. Mm. And you think of 1904 through like the early 1920s, you think of the world that Nathaniel would have grown up in. It probably would have felt like there's so many different threads pulling in different directions, right? Like the real rise of the power of things like the NAACP and thinking of Nathaniel growing up, like he would have had an opportunity to go watch Marcus Garvey parades in New York City. But he also would have seen, you know, because it keeps getting reposted because it should, you know, the prominence of the NAACP continuing the fight of people like Ida B. Wells to call out lynching, right? To call out racial violence. And it's like, that's also what he would have grown up Mm. with, right? Like that would have been his life as well. And to think of how these books I think we're marketed in late 80s and early 90s as like this whole other world, but they're so not that different. Like there's so much I think that ties us to Samantha in a way that I know for us, we didn't feel with a Kirsten, right? Like we didn't feel, I think that kind of tension, Samantha's different. Yeah. And also thinking about the world Nathaniel's going to grow up in, like he will likely grow up to be draft age for World War One, and he'll, you know, I know, I don't want to think about it. But also, like, I don't want that for anybody, (laughs) please. Um, But he also, like, there's this sense in history that it's like, if you get to live through the development of new technology, you must have embraced it and it was a net positive Mm -hmm. for you. So also thinking about the fact that he and Samantha would have been likely alive during the advent of motion pictures and thinking about, like, the birth of the nation as, like, the first truly, like, nationwide hit movie, which, of course, romanticizes the lost cause narrative of the Civil War and celebrates the KKK as heroes. So, like, imagining Nathaniel in a movie theater, maybe it's one that has air conditioning, which is, you know, another <laughs> new adventure uh, invention that I personally am deeply attached to. Um, but having to sit and watch that and then go serve his country to allegedly defend and make the world safe for that vision of democracy. Like, imagine how difficult that would be. And thinking about a connection to our world, like thinking about the technology we have, the technology that's evolved in our lifetimes. Like social media did not exist when I was nine years old reading this book didn't happen but thinking about the ways that that's both made the world better air quotes or the ways that it's been also corrupted or used to spread a lot of hate um and a lot of the same prejudices that the characters in this book are dealing with as well i don't want to make like a huge leap is eddie a descendant of ben oh my god i don't think it's huge i'm sorry i actually don't think it's it's not but it's like like, (sighs) i just i thought we were free of ben is the thing (laughs) no Eddie is so gross. Like, honestly, I can't even (laughs) with him. It's like he is that person who would be like constantly standing in his driveway, washing his car perpetually every single day of the week to be like, 
hey, what's going on? Like, oh, I know something you don't know. Like, he says that literally two or three times in this book. And it's like, who cares? So I think we're meant to imagine Eddie as like a super infantilized version of Teddy Roosevelt because 1904 is like a huge year for Teddy as well. Like, I think with his obsession with like picking up natural like pieces of the natural world and like claiming them for himself. Like, I think that's a very Rooseveltian thing to do. I want to believe that Samantha is, you know, of the Eleanor ilk for both her queerness and like interest in people who live differently from her. Sure. But we don't know yet. Like, honestly, it's so shocking to think about, like, there's a good chance that Nellie probably wouldn't live through the flu pandemic. Oh my God, why did you have to bring that up? I know, but it's true. Like, it's true. Like, Nellie's life is probably only going to get marginally better from, like, after these books. Um, But, like, Samantha probably could have gone to an all-women's college, which I think she would have really liked. You know, I think she could have explored, yeah, a lot of things. I think she could have explored a lot of those things. I have certain question marks, and this is maybe a good moment to get into this. So the author, Susan Adler, who we'll get into in a moment, brings up Alice Roosevelt because Samantha basically says, this is, as you're saying, like a Roosevelt forward moment. And she basically says, my uncle Guard, again, not a real name, um, is, you know, has this girlfriend, Cornelia. Do you think they're going to get married? And Jesse's like, that's an adult question. Like, stay out of it. And she's like, I think that she should he should marry Alice, someone like Alice Roosevelt. Now, Alice Roosevelt is like truly a singular person in American history and that she was like kind of a like a very famous socialite professionally for her entire life. And as someone who herself would have loved to have probably gone to an all female college, she was just that much younger that she couldn't. She's the child of Teddy Roosevelt's first marriage, which devastated him. And he could not speak. He would literally not be in a room where his wife's first wife's name was spoken for the rest of his life. He would leave. He goes to North Dakota and does his like cowboy cosplay after her death. His wife and mother die on the same day in the same house in New York City. Alice is the result of that. So he has a weird relationship with Alice where like he lets his sister raise her for like two years until he gets remarried. And then Alice basically grows up to be like a hottie of like the Victorian or like Edwardian period. And I just think there's a lot to be said for like Samantha being the author's imagination of what Alice Roosevelt would have been like as a child. Mm. That's my reading of this book. And I do have some pieces of evidence that I would like to share with you right now. Yes, please. So one of the things that we see in this book is that Samantha is very good at manipulating situations to get her way. So I'm just saying that. So like my chief evidence of this that made me internally scream when I read this book occurs on page uh, 15 where she's talking to Grand Mary and basically like getting scolded about not being a lady. And um, she said she really wants a new porcelain doll that she sees in a storefront. And she asked her grandmother for it. And her grandma's like, it's six dollars. That's a lot of money. I'm saying no to this. And Samantha's like, well, I'll earn earn money. I'll get a job. And her her grandmother says, a lady doesn't earn money, which is like fascinating. To which (laughs) then Samantha says, to get her grandmother back on board, she says, I would have called the doll Lydia. She said softly, she looks like my mother. And it's like, oh my God, like, I can't believe you were willing to go there. (laughs) And then like, obviously that works on the grandmother. By the way, if you're interested, the doll cost $6 in 1904, according to the Consumer Price Index. That's $178 today. Um, 
just floating that. But I do think that that kind of anecdote of like how manipulative she was willing to be with like a parental figure to get her way is very Alice Roosevelt, who is known for literally interrupting Teddy Roosevelt in the White House in the Oval Office to be like, Dad, excuse me, I have something I need to get in front of you about. She was constantly trying to barge in and advise like the Secretary of State would leave and she'd be like, well, I want to give my two cents on this foreign policy (laughs) situation. And he famously said, like, I can either manage the country or Alice, I can't do both. And because she just required so much attention and was so much. Um, and at one point, her dad threatened to send her to an all-girls conservative school in New York City. And Alice wrote to him and said, quote, if you send me, I will humiliate you. I will do something that will shame you. I tell you I will. Which to me is like Samantha threatening to put the Beatle collection into the collection plate vibes. <laughs> also on page 50, we see Samantha in a very cute dress that's a very pretty shade of blue now allison i don't know if you know this but when alice roosevelt went to the white house when her dad became president she became like a national celeb her coming out party was like hugely famous and reported on etc etc she was so famous that she had a color named after her called alice blue and if you look up that color it's very similar to the color dress that samantha's wearing so you know what susan adler if you're trying to send me a message i got it girl I got it. Message received. Case closed. Thank you. Like, we don't have time to do what we need to do to discuss the author of this book because she brought a lot of things into our life, not just Samantha. True. That is very important. Um, There is so much in this book about a discourse of what it means to be a lady. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not like it's not an accident that there is a chapter called a new girl because soon like Samantha will grow up in the period of the quote new woman mm. where it's very much like what being a woman of a certain race class and background and wealth and income level means is changing a lot mm. and it's like Samantha is the proverbial like canary in the coal mine for the family where she's like but what if being a woman means something different and Cornelia is i think going to kind of show the way with that, like Cornelia is this other kind of role model who comes into their lives. Grandmary to me, I think like we haven't fully got in like the depths of her backstory. She has such VC Andrews grandma vibes to me. It's like, Oof, oh my God. <laughs> I read everything she says as so nefarious, which I think is totally unfair. I also think there's something too, like when you were talking about the Roosevelt's Another relationship that came to mind was Teddy Roosevelt's insistence on having an integrated meal and inviting Mm. Booker T. Washington to the White House. And I think it's also this thing of like the way that Samantha interacts with Jesse or the way that she interacts with Jesse and Lincoln, it's still very much on her terms. Like the world in which Teddy Roosevelt inhabited, like he saw Booker T. Washington as a man and as an equal in intellect and as someone that he wanted to engage with. And people drew all kinds of conclusions from that. I kind of see Samantha the same way as someone who eventually runs a suffrage organization and invites like one very prominent woman, like a Mary Church Terrell to meeting, but is not interested in like overturning structure. Right. Like, I mean, she's there to have a token friend, so to speak, or to do like a surface level, like grand gesture, but not necessarily do the work of like actually implementing structural change, which, as you're saying, is not glamorous and takes a sustained commitment, which is maybe not something that she's willing to 
offer. And just to like co-sign your feelings on Grand Mary, I have to say that the ending <laughs> of this book made me laugh because it just feels like so disjointed as a response. So the book ends with basically Grand Mary finding out that Samantha has given Lydia her doll to Nellie, who is being sent back to her family. She has a cough that she developed from working in the factory, but the family she's working for thinks that it means that she's sick and they don't want to be infected, so they send her back. And they say, quote, like, we were going to get an immigrant next time. They'll last longer, which is like... Stark. Okay. Um, so then, and it's also like, and I, by the way, I went to Jesse's and I found out the real reason she left. And Grand Mary's like, okay. And she's like, <laughs> we need to help Nellie's family. Like, they don't have enough food and they don't have enough coal. Could we help them, please? Direct quote. Grand Mary's eyebrows went up and then she threw back her head and laughed. Yes, Samantha. <laughs> yes. I guess if you care enough to give up your finest treasure, we can find a way to help Nellie's family. Throwing back your head and laughing as your otherwise, like, very self-directed granddaughter is finally, like, showing some self-awareness just feels like such a weird response. Like, maybe she's just delighted to see this change in Samantha, but it's like, what's going on there? I have a different thing that I'm also concerned about that I guess we'll have to pay attention to as these books go on. Oh, And that's Uncle Guard. And, yeah. you know, I don't know if anyone has seen um, the Bohemian Rhapsody movie, which is highly problematic and not something I think is a actually great cultural artifact of queer life. Just saying that during Pride Month, like most of Freddie Mercury's narrative about being gay is like one of pain and mostly sad times and then AIDS. So it's like, OK, I think we can do better than that as like a storytelling arc. And I'm sure there was moments of joy and pleasure in his life anyway, not getting into that. There is a really weird scene in that movie because it's produced by the other band members where they want to seem like it wasn't just Freddie Mercury who was a musical genius that they contributed things to. So there's an awkward scene where the drummer's like, hey, guys, I just wrote this song. I think it'd be great on the album. It's called I'm in love with my car. And they're like, ha ha ha. Like, no, seriously. He's like, no, really? This song is called I'm in love with my car. And Allison, I just want to submit to you. Uncle Guard does look like Freddie Mercury. And I do think he's in love with his car, or at least loves his car more than Cornelia. Your thoughts? So I did some quick research, and there was about 8,000 cars total on the road. Yeah. I know. You love a number. You love a number drop. I love drop. A stat. Also, the start of the Panama Canal. You know, like, transportation is changing wildly wow, in 1904. Wow. had to bring that in, huh? I had to. Um, but I think you're spot on where I think, like, the car is a symbol for something in Guard's life. And I think it's also not a coincidence that it's like he has made one of his sole missions to be able to drive away from the women in his life. <laughs> He's like, this is important to this me. This is very important work. Yeah, extremely important. They're also concerned about all the wrong things. And I I understand why where Guard is like, I'll teach her how to drive. And Grand Mary is like, she does not have the outfit. Like Grand Mary... <laughs> really is very much in the princess diaries mode of mentorship where she's like if you have the right clothes you can handle it if there's no seatbelts there's basically no safety no safety but also like you can see the appeal of even like if he has to take a woman in his car it kind of reminds me of the bachelor dates they stage when they have no (laughs) confidence in the intelligence or the attractiveness of people involved where they're like we're just gonna put them in a really loud car or in a helicopter and that way like they won't have to speak yeah. And that's probably his MO, too, where he's like, I'm not going to have to talk to her if we're, like, flying around the city in this really noisy automobile. But I think Cornelia is into that. Like, I think Cornelia is into it for the car and the access. And I think they both, like, they met through, like, 
different boarding school friends. And I think they both know exactly what it is. And I think Cornelia sees something in Samantha where she's like, I'm going to hang around just long enough to see where this goes. Cornelia's like, listen, I just graduated from Smith. Like I've done the continental tour. I have a lot of lady friends. I'm, I have a million causes. I have a lot of things I'm doing. And the very last thing I want is a man who's like, let me lock you down and like, let's have a lot of kids right now. So Uncle Guard is like absolutely perfect. I think she's also our access to a world of like, I'm thinking of, um, there's this great biography of Alice James, who's kind of like a forgotten member Mm. of the James family of Henry and others, you know, books like the metaphysical club where it's like, there are these spaces in the United States that are full of like intellectual charge and like intellectual rigor. And I see her kind of intersecting with that and the guard being like, do you want to go fast? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> in a way, it's like Ina Garten and Jeffrey, where <laughs> yeah. like Ina is someone who's like, listen, I got a million books in the, in the works. I have my grocery store. I have my TV show. I have my like guy friends coming over in like freshly starched polo shirts to eat like weird combinations <laughs> of stuff and roast chicken. And Jeffrey's just like giggling there and he's like delighted by everything. And he's like, anyway, like want to go for a ride in my like Corvette down to the beach. And she's like, yeah, fine. Okay. I think for the first time, like, because we know so much about like approximate periods and because 1904 sort of in a way like Josefina, I don't feel like there's going to be like the obvious event right like with other people with Addie it's been like the civil war ends with Molly it's like world war ii will end I think with this book as with some others it's more of an atmospheric vibe and that lets us you know in some ways like think more creatively like I really would love to check in with Nathaniel in 15 years I would also love to go back and be like how did Samantha come onto this earth and did Grand Mary approve of the marriage did she order a hit I don't know I mean listen there was a moment when where we get the scene where she when Jesse's like well I'm out of here and Grand Mary's like see ya thanks for your service and no one they're going way out of their way to not say like you know, congratulations, like you're pregnant, whatever. Like, obviously there's a lot of, you know, social mores around that. But there was a part of me that was like, can Grand Mary really not tell Samantha she's having a baby? And is it because it's triggering for her because it brings up maybe a past event that was really the source of her parents' death and not a so-called boat accident that is incredibly vague (laughs) <laughs> I'm just saying, like, we, we're not getting any information. And I feel like if there was a boat accident, we would be getting details. I think we're going to get details in subsequent books because I think Samantha is going to have to, like, relive the trauma of her parents in Samantha Saves the Day. That's about all I remember. Wow. But I feel like if you have a child that you're raising in your golden years and her parents died on a boat, why are you buying maritime outfits? Well, I mean, it's a complicated situation, and it's like I also would be avoiding a naval theme at this <laughs> stage of the game. I do yeah. know, and like, I don't know how I know this, but the naval suit for children originated with Prince Edward, then King Edward, so or like Birdie, then King Edward. So it's like it's of its time that that's like what they put her in. But it's like, come on, guys, do we really need to do this to her? But also, like Samantha is completely untouched, seemingly by the trauma of her parents. <laughs> Both parents died. Like, we've been through Josefina. Like, admittedly, she's close with her mom. Like, 
we've been through all these, like, I won't talk about murder because I'm not, I can't go back there. But, like, <laughs> we've had trauma on this show. And yeah. seemingly she's like, anyway, my parents are dead. Well, uh, have you heard from your husband? Can you send me another postcard? And it's like, really? We're just moving right along on that? Apparently we're cruising right past it with Sam here. Hop in the car. Let's go. Crank it I am, up. like, thrilled to see her learn a lesson because I feel like she learned about 18 in this one. So yeah. it's like, what's next? Is there going to be a ceiling where we hit with her where she's like, I can't learn anymore? <laughs> Yeah. She's like, no, I can't do it. It's over. I think the first time she and Nellie have a fight. Wow. I can't wait for that, though. Truly. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm very thrilled to be in Samantha. And I will say, as always, thank you to everyone who reaches out to us because I posted that we were doing Samantha. And several people were like, I've been waiting. Wow. Listen, I've been waiting a lifetime for a moment like this to quote Kelly Clarkson, who is on my watch list of people I am deeply concerned about, Allison. The divorce. The divorce. What happened? Here's the thing. Colton and Cassie, we knew. We knew that you were getting him through COVID. Becca and Garrett, it's a matter of time because he's an all lives matter advocate. Yeah. These two, I didn't see it coming. I apologize. I do just have to circle back for a minute because it's something I couldn't stop thinking about. Because you invoked the king, Edward. When they had Eddie Ryland, the neighbor, it's like they looked at that baby and they were like, it can be Edward. It can be Ted. It can be Ed. It can be Big Ed. It can be many things. And they were like, he's an Eddie, which I think is a choice that changes your destiny. Wow. Wow. I think that's true. Like there are certain nicknames that go with your name that if you accept them or if you project them onto a child, but if you yourself accept them, it's absolutely like it can change your life for the worst. Like I remember an aunt of mine tried to call me mayor and make that happen. And my (laughs) grandmother, after whom I'm named, literally turned on a dime. We were at a family party. There's a ton of people there. And she was like, excuse me. No, it's Mary or it's Mimi. Yeah, that's it. We're done here. And it's like, I think wow, it I could have gone. You. And she turned to me and she was like, you're not a horse. And I was like, wow. <laughs> she hadn't read Felicity. She didn't know that that was actually like an option that you could do that. So, wow. It, you're right. I mean, Eddie is like pretty damning as a life course. And if you aren't Eddie, like, please reach out to us. But just also know that like we're still reeling from revelations about Big Ed from 90 days. I was going to say, I don't want to hear like- from that Ed. But yeah, anyone <laughs> else. We're not like we're not like condemning the entire spectrum. We're just saying like it's a choice. It's a choice. And listen, if you've overcome that, would love to celebrate <laughs> you. Reach out to me. I'm ready. Mary, if people do want to reach out to you or continue to send you congratulations, how should they do that? Please, please write to me on Instagram at <laughs> Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. Thank you to everyone who's reached out to me so far. I genuinely love hearing from people. And I do write back to everybody. Sometimes it takes me a minute, but I did write back to everybody. I love all of your theories. And if you want to comment on my personal theory, which is that Kelly Clarkson's marriage was doomed the moment that Reba divorced her soon-to-be ex-husband's father. Yeah. Please write to me. And Allison, if people have their own theories about Kelly Clarkson's divorce and anything else, Eddie's, the Eddie's of it all, where can they find you? 
Um, I'm at Eddie Ryland. No, I'm <laughs> at I'm at Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram. And we would love if you would follow the show, um, American Girls Podcast at Instagram and A Girls Pod on Twitter. And I'll just say too, I had to just pull it up. One of our beloved accounts is Samantha underscore in underscore quarantine. I guess just like regular. Samantha and quarantine was taken. Sure. Um, and they post things that are very funny about how Samantha would survive quarantine. So if that's something like, you're would interested she? in. Um, that's part of the funny. She's melting down. Wow. Love it. And honestly, she's also captured some beautiful shots of Samantha like in the maritime outfit. Wow. Sailing I can't wait outfit? For that. Sailing. I can't either. Naval I can't something. Either. She wow. plays a switch like she's all over. Oh my god. All right. That sounds I mean that doll's life seems cooler than mine. I'll just have to live with that. But wow. Well, until next time everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much. Go, 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 go.